0: Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash FQG. This activity is supported by an educational
1: grant from Merck KGAA Darmstadt, Germany. Welcome to this Peer Voice on Demand activity based on a recent live event. This video-based activity comprises four presentations with a panel of experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Good evening ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this uh, evening, this CME educational symposium entitled After more than a decade, can we now enhance treatment of patients with locally advanced squamous cell carcinoma? My name is Kevin Harrington. I'm a head and neck oncologist from the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. Now, you might have been forgiven for thinking that the biggest event happening in Chicago this evening was a concert being put on by Taylor Swift not so far from here. Um, but in fact, as you're well aware, and of fact, you're here, the hottest ticket tonight is the double act that we're going to see this evening. <laughs> My friends and colleagues, um, Professor Ezra Cohen of the University Of California San Diego and Professor Barbara Burtness of Yale University. So, we welcome you to this event and we're grateful for your discerning participation. So, with no further ado, I'm going to just move on and set the scene very briefly for what we're going to discuss this evening. And you will hear throughout the course of the evening discussions around mechanisms of cell death. You will be aware that previously we thought of cell death in terms of two processes really, apoptosis and necrosis. And you can see from this diagram um, presented here from a review article um, from Goluzzi and colleagues that actually cell death now can occur, occur by a multitude of mechanisms. We're going to focus particularly on apoptosis this evening that can occur through two key processes, the intrinsic pathway that is generated from intracellular um, genotoxic stress and the sensing thereof. It is mediated at the level of the mitochondrion, and it's involving the generation of a body called the apoptosome that leads to activation of downstream caspases, notably caspase 9 and caspase 3. In addition, there's an extrinsic pathway sensing signals from extrinsic to the cell through death ligands binding to death receptors, and again involves the activation of caspases, notably caspase-8. And again, you will be familiar with the notion that there are different forms of cell death, and we think particularly now in this era of immunotherapy around the importance of generating immunogenic cell death, the hallmarks of which have been described as extracellular release of ATP and HMGB1, and decoration of the cell membrane with calreticulin that usually sits within the endoplasmic reticulum. This can lead to activation of dendritic cells and also to T-cells. In contrast, there can be a form of cell death whereby apoptosis can lead to a non-immunogenic, tolerogenic form of cell death, which is one that we won't necessarily want to see in patients receiving anti-cancer treatments. So with that, I now have pleasure in handing the podium to uh, Professor Ezra Cohen, who will give the first data presentation. Ezra.
0: Thanks, Kevin. Uh, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to set the stage for all of us with respect to the disease that we're going to be talking about, uh, that is locally advanced cell sarcosinoma of the head and neck. And uh, the first thing to realize is that uh, head and neck cancer is a local regional disease. Uh, the majority of patients, uh, about 90%, will either present with localized disease, so a small tumor without involved lymph nodes, or locally advanced disease, um, a tumor of varying size but with lymph node involvement. Of course, as you might guess, the uh, stage at presentation certainly influences survival with patients that have localized disease faring well, while those who eventually develop distant disease not so well. And so with that in mind, that really brings up two critical issues when we talk about squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. The first is that it is a curable disease for the majority of patients, and most patients will be treated with curative intent. And the second is that the disease and its treatment will profoundly affect function and if you think about what you're doing right now uh taking a sip of your drink uh a mouthful of food uh talking to your neighbor um no i'm just kidding <laughs> uh <laughs> you can understand that the consequences of this cancer and its therapy uh are um uh, incredibly uh, stark um and therefore locally advanced squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck uh, really does require a multidisciplinary treatment approach. And in fact, there are now good data sets, prospective, that strongly support the involvement of a multidisciplinary team for optimal outcomes. And as you can see from the graphic here, that that team does not only consist of surgeons, radiation oncologists, and medical oncologists, but actually there are multiple individuals and multiple specialties that should be ideally a part of that multidisciplinary team. In terms of a non-surgical standard of care, and certainly here in the U.S., many patients, in fact the majority of patients, for locally advanced head and neck cancer are treated with a non-surgical or surgical sparing approach. And we can talk about resectability, uh, or, or, or the lack thereof. But the reality is that for most patients, the choice to not do surgery upfront is more a functional uh, a choice based on functional outcome rather than resectability. But with that in mind, um, we do have standards for concurrent chemotherapy radiation. And the most widely used and certainly the best supported with data is uh, definitive chemotherapy radiation with cisplatin and uh, radiotherapy to 70 gray. Uh, that cisplatin can take now really two forms, again, validated by phase three data, either the tri- more traditional high dose, 100 milligram per meter squared, or the more recent, and when I say that, it's still been uh, for years, uh, the weekly 40 milligram per meter squared dosing. With respect to laryngeal preservation, and and that's this has been an outcome, a primary endpoint, I should say, in multiple studies with uh, larynx cancer. Um, we also know that the two-year local regional control is significantly better with concurrent chemotherapy radiation versus either a sequential approach or radiation therapy alone. And if there's interest in the Q and A, we can certainly talk about the long-term outcomes of that specific study, ninety-one eleven. But it's not necessarily germane to the point. The reality also is that the cisplatin dose matters, and again, this underscores the legitimacy and the utility of a multidisciplinary team because what we do to these patients is treat them with an aggressive chemotherapy radiation regimen. And for those of you in the room who treat these patients, I think you'll agree with me. Um, I tell patients, we are going to put you through hell, but the reason we do that is that we are going to cure or at least try to cure your cancer. And with that in mind, we do try to get as much of the cisplatin as possible, but studies albeit retrospective in nature, would suggest that 200 milligram per meter squared is the magic number. That seems to be associated with the best outcomes. Is it worthwhile adding chemotherapy to radiation? And the answer, I think, definitively is yes, primarily based on this meta-analysis that I'm showing you. Um, This, by the way, is the way to conduct a meta-analysis. It is single-patient chart review. This is the right way to do this study. And when the IGR group did this, what they found was that when chemotherapy was administered concurrently to radiation, there was an improvement in survival. Now, you may say, well, that uh, difference in survival uh, is only a few percentage points. But let's remember, we're talking about the difference of patients dying of their disease versus surviving their disease. And I would argue that even at 6.5%, that's an important difference. Certainly, it was statistically significant. When we talk about the multimodality treatment paradigm, um, this is one algorithm. It's certainly one that uh, we look at when discussing patients in our multidisciplinary tumor board, but by no means is it the only one. We assess a patient, of course, starting with stage uh, and its anatomic staging. Um, I'll get to the influence of HPV in just a moment. We determine whether surgery is the appropriate frontline or first approach, Um, not again necessarily based on resectability, but based on functional outcome. If the patient is deemed to be a good candidate for surgery, uh, of course, they undergo an operation. And then we talk about adjuvant radiation or chemotherapy radiation. Um, If they are deemed to be a poor candidate for surgery, for whatever reason, we have choices of concurrent chemotherapy radiation, or in some cases, and we can talk about this more, induction chemotherapy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by concurrent chemotherapy radiation. I told you I would talk about HPV, and let me spend some time on that because certainly in North America and other parts of the world, HPV, oropharynx cancer, has profoundly influenced the epidemiology of this disease. In fact, in the U.S., it is one of the highest Uh, rising incident cancers that we have. Um, And we, again, can talk about the biology and epidemiology. But the thing I want to illustrate with this slide is that we now recognize that HPV positive oropharynx cancer does have a significantly better prognosis, in fact, about a hazard ratio of 0.5. We can further stratify, as Dr. Eng and his colleagues did in this study, uh, the prognosis of HPV-positive oropharynx cancer by the smoking history. And here, uh, in a regressive partition analysis, the cut point was 10-pack years, and, and again, We can talk about the validity of that, but suffice it to say that, um, as intuitively you may guess, that HPV-positive smokers fare worse than HPV-positive non or specially never smokers. And with that in mind, with the better prognosis of HPV-positive oropharynx cancer, the AJCC in its last edition, the eighth edition, actually changed the staging system to be different between HPV positive and HPV negative, reflecting the better prognosis of HPV positive. And certainly you don't need to remember this, but just remember that the stage seeing system is in fact different. With that in mind, what is the treatment for HPV positive oropharynx cancer? and it is exactly the same as i just told you in fact um two very large studies one conducted in north america one in the uk tried to change that with the hypothesis that cetuximab could be substituted for cisplatin be better tolerated and yield equivalent survival in a non-inferiority design It turns out that that's not the case. In fact, the green line is cetuximab, and you can see that in both studies, the cetuximab arm fared worse than cisplatin. So cisplatin radiation remains the standard of care for both HPV-negative, and HPV positive disease. However, cisplatin-based chemotherapy radiation is hampered by high-grade toxicity. And for those of you who use this agent, uh, this slide comes as no surprise, both an increase in acute toxicities, which incidentally are somewhat different between the every three week and the weekly dose. And again, that's something we can talk about if there's interest, Uh, but also an increase in late toxicities As you see there, which, of course, leads back to this idea of supportive care and the multidisciplinary nature of therapy, because it is paramount, as I told you, to try and deliver cisplatin in the appropriate dose, as well as not take breaks in the delivery of radiation. And in order to do that, we need to be aggressive. With our supportive care. And there you see a list of measures that one really should take when evaluating these patients. Well, what about chemotherapy, uh, chemoradiotherapy resistance? As you can guess, there are multiple mechanisms that have been implicated. The stark reality is that, as I told you at the beginning of my session, we were going to treat the majority of these patients, 90% of them, with curative intent therapy. The reality is that especially for HPV negative patients, we are successful only about 50% of the time. So half of those patients have some form of chemo radiotherapy resistant inherent in their cancers. But as my um, colleagues will tell you, there may be ways to get around that. Well, how do we improve on chemotherapy radiation or at least what attempts have been made? One was to intensify radiation and quite honestly, as you can see from the curves, that did not work. So taking, adding five gray to go to 75 gray and 35 fractions um, did not result in better outcomes. This was a Gore-Tex study. The other is using different types of radiation modalities, such as proton. There is a randomized study ongoing comparing proton to photon in the form of IMRT. But many of us in the field, including myself, and uh, this reflects my bias, of course, feel that it's unlikely that that is going to improve efficacy. It could improve toxicity, uh, but um, not clear whether it'll improve efficacy. And then third was, of course, neoadjuvant or induction chemotherapy. This was an attempt that was certainly close to my heart. Um, You see the middle study there, the, 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 the side trial, which was negative, along with four of those five randomized phase three trials that you see, all negative. The one at the bottom, the Italian experience, the exception that did show a benefit to induction chemotherapy. And then lastly, what about EGFR inhibition. We know that EGFR is an important um, gene and protein in these cancers. It is uh, expressed in the great majority at high levels of, of these tumors. And the natural inclination after the uh, study run by Jim Bonner, hey Jim, I see you at the back of the room, that showed that the addition of cetuximab to radiation improved survival compared to radiation therapy alone. The natural progression of its development was to add it to chemotherapy radiation. But as you can see from the gore and the RT TOG studies, these attempts were negative. And so we look for novel mechanisms. And the one mechanism that we'll talk a little bit more about in depth has to do with what Kevin was telling you uh, 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 earlier this evening, and that is uh, apoptosis. Um, if we had an agent that could uh, lower the threshold for apoptosis in a cancer cell uh, along with a stimulus or an insult that would lead to an apoptotic cell death we may be able to synergize that modality. And such an agent is represented by Zivinipant or the SMAC mimetics in general. And what they are is essentially an inhibitor of an inhibitor. So the IAPs or the XIAPs are uh, both intrinsic and extrinsic controllers or negative regulators of apoptosis and therefore um, inhibiting those actually lowers the threshold for that apoptotic insult. And you can see from preclinical models that this is true, both with radiation and with um, cytotoxic chemotherapy, in this case, cisplatin. So in summary, squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck is a locally advanced disease. It presents in the majority of patients with local or local regional disease, and it is treated for cure- with aggressive local regional therapy. Cisplatin radiation, either as every three week, 100 milligram per meter squared, or now 40 milligram per meter squared weekly, remains the standard of care for platinum-eligible patients. And we can talk about the platinum-ineligible. In fact, we will touch upon that. And then zevenipant is a small molecule IAP inhibitor that shifts the threshold, favoring ap- apoptosis, and sets up the cancer cell for its demise upon an insult that induces apoptosis. Um, all right. I think at this point, let me turn the podium over to uh, Barbara Burtness, who's going to talk to you uh, or take you on a deeper dive.
2: Hi, everybody. Thank you for being here. Um, so as we set the stage with uh, where, where we are, what our, what our standards are, um, what are the trials that have been reported in, in recent years where people have looked at incorporating emerging therapies into the management of locally advanced squamous cell cancer of the head and neck? So um, what I'm going to do, just in brief, examine data for incorporation of immunotherapy. Obviously, immune checkpoint inhibitors have been a, a major step forward in some lines of therapy in head and neck cancer. So what are the data incorporating that into standard of care both for PD-L1 inhibition and for PD-1 inhibition. We'll talk about preliminary data or early, uh, trial data with SMAC mimetics, and then what are some new directions. So I'll start with the Javelin study and it's, it's always awkward when you're presenting a study in the, and the senior author is in the room. So Dr. Cohen, um, was instrumental in this study. Uh, this looked at a PD-L1 inhibitor of LMM. And how to incorporate that into standard of care with um, high dose cisplatin and radiation for locally advanced disease. So patients got a dose of avelumab, they got the chemo radiation with avelumab, and then they went on to avelumab maintenance. Or if they were on the control arm, they got placebo followed by chemo radiation followed by placebo. And the primary endpoint was progression free survival. And this um much to everybody's astonishment was a negative study. Um you can see here that the Avelumab arm starts to dip below the control arm um between about 4 to 6 months and and runs consistently below it um with uh, a hazard ratio of about 1.21 uh, 1. and even for overall survival uh with with relatively short follow-up some uh, non-significant but, but worrying trend towards, uh, towards worse outcome with the incorporation of this PDL l one inhibitor. Um, if we go into the uh, subgroup analysis as shown in the uh, forest plot, uh, Two things to, to call out. Uh, first of all, if you look at HPV status, um, you were hearing a lot about how HPV-associated cancers are, are potentially more uh, responsive to radiation. But we do see a subset, those with bulky disease and tobacco history, who remain at, at, at risk. And those were the ones who were accrued here. No hint that they were uh, better served by the incorporation of a pdl one inhibitor. And then the one group that did look to benefit uh, were those patients who expressed PD-L1 um, on their tumors more more richly. So I think some um, some suggestion that that uh, there may be some patients who will benefit from this strategy, but certainly overall a negative study. Um, in terms of safety, uh, I'm just highlighting here the uh, grade three four adverse events in more than ten percent of patients, and not a not a striking difference between the two arms. So the, the next large study that was reported uh, was the Keynote 412, and this was a, a very similar study, uh, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, lead-in uh, followed by uh, chemoradiation with the immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, followed by uh, maintenance the difference here was that this was a pd1 inhibitor consistently i think we've now been seeing that the pd1 inhibitors are a little bit uh, uh more consistent in head neck cancer than the pdl1 inhibitors um so some hope that with a more validated drug uh we would get a different result and um uh not so much so uh here the pembro uh chemo radiation arm runs a little bit above the chemo radiation arm but uh, once again, there's no significant benefit. This was not a positive study. You can see the, the hazard ratio overall for the addition of pembrolizumab was 0. Um, 0.83, and that p-value of 0.0429 did not meet the uh, criteria set in the statistical design of the study. And if you look at overall survival, no difference at three years. Well, uh, over the, the, as we saw in Javelin, it looked like the, maybe the benefit was confined to those who were PD-L1 expressing that that, um, relationship between benefit and PDL1 expression, uh, has certainly been seen in the, uh, studies in recurrent metastatic disease. So how did this look in the PDL1 expressing patients? And maybe it looked a little bit better, but, uh, again, nothing, nothing significant. So a hazard ratio in the CPS1 and higher population of 0.8. You can see that if you're looking at uh, median survival, 45 months for the control arm, not yet reached for the pembrolizumab arm, um, and less than a 7% difference in three-year uh, event-free survival, and really no difference in overall survival. Well, what about those that express PDL one most richly? That has been uh, often where we see the greatest benefit. And um, here, there's a little bit more of a hint. So, um, Median, uh, the, the hazard ratio of 0.73 in the three-year survival going from 57 to 66.7%. But this was, um, uh, not statistically significant. You can see the competence intervals well crossing one there. And then for overall survival, uh, uh again, um, uh, the competence intervals on that hazard ratio crossing one. So um, here was a, a trial that um, used a validated agent, uh, had a, a large and adequate sample size, no benefit overall, and if there was a subtle benefit in the CPS20 population, it was not statistically significant. Here, again, uh, not too much of a safety signal. There were four treatment-related deaths in the pembrolizumab arm and six in the placebo arm, um, and 41% of patients had adverse events leading to discontinuation in the pembrolizumab chemoradiation arm compared to 33% in the placebo chemoradiation. radiation so one of the questions has been, are we doing it right? Uh, is this idea that you give a single dose of an immune checkpoint inhibitor to prime, and then you start the curative radiation, is that really the smartest way to do things? Or are you really just radiating a bunch of hopeful T cells that are trying to go in there and do their job, and you're uh, killing them? Um, so this is a, a small randomized trial from the University of Pittsburgh, Um looking at the question of whether uh changing the scheduling of immune checkpoint inhibition might make a difference um so here you see that in one arm patients finished their concurrent chemo radiation and then went on to uh, uh uh 24 weeks of pembrolizumab and that was compared to a group where they got the the priming dose and then pembrolizumab was continued through and past the uh chemo radiation and um, in these data that were presented at ASCO last year, um, you can see that there um certainly no statistically significant uh, difference to this uh, small trial, but that there is uh, a hint of a um, – and the, the table there is showing you one, two, and three-year survival percentages. Um, so uh, with sequential – uh at um 3 years 84% progression free compared with 74% with concurrent and you see the, and you see the uh survival curve or the PFS curves there so a suggestion that this uh playing around with the scheduling might be productive for us if you uh compare these two arms the um uh grade 3 adverse events did look a little bit higher with uh, concurrent although i have to say Um, They they look almost a little lower than we've seen in big phase three trials for uh, the sequential arm. Building on uh, that strategy, in ECOG-Akron, we do have a, a trial of sequential nivolumab for intermediate-risk HPV-associated or pharynx cancer. So this is uh, the group that either has T4 and 3 disease or uh, heavy smoking history. We know that this is a group that has a, a pretty decent complete response rate, um, but as we look at the um, progression-free and overall survival curves, they do do worse than the non-smokers and the patients with uh, lesser disease. Um, some interest, as, as you heard earlier in the, in the effects that radiation might have, um, including that it can upreg- upregulate PD-L1 expression and foster tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. It avoids the idea that we might be radi- radiating the newly uh, recruited tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. However, we recognize that after we've ablated the lymph nodes with radiation, they may have a reduced capacity to participate in the immune response. And the design of this study, which is ongoing, is to uh, enroll patients up front, have them complete radiation with weekly cisplatin, and then be randomized to nivolumab or observation. Another completed study that I, I want to mention is the um, NRG HN004 study. This was for patients who were deemed to be cisplatin ineligible, either because of um, performance status, comorbidity, um, or uh, hearing loss. And um, the control arm for this was uh, uh, taken to be the Bonner regimen of cetuximab um, and 70-Grey uh, of IMRT. Sort of interesting that this is not a group of patients who necessarily would have met the eligibility criteria in the Bonner trial. So um, an interesting look at uh, cetuximab radiation in um, in the platinum ineligible population and then the, uh, experimental arm here, dervalimab, so a PDL1 inhibitor, um, together with 70 gray of radiation. And, uh, this study again showed, uh, some, something of a disadvantage for the PDL1 inhibitor. So you see here the hazard ratio of 1.21, actually somewhat similar to the hazard ratio in Javelin. Um, and I think for the first time, some validation of the idea of using cetuximab in radiation in, um, the frail or, or comorbid, uh, population. Something I think all. All of us had been doing for many years, maybe without so much data. Uh, No grade four to five adverse events were observed in that trial. Um, Grade three or higher adverse events possibly related to dervalumab, its prior name was MEDI-4736, were diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, not too many events, and uh, very few uh, or no high grade events that were definitely or probably related to the agent. So that is a lot of work that's gone into studying the incorporation of immune checkpoint inhibitors into chemo radiation, and you know, I think that you have to say that we 've drawn a complete blank uh, to date and, and we need to rethink our strategy. But what about other emerging therapies and so you heard from Dr. Cohen about Xvinopant, um, an inhibitor of one of the inhibitors of apoptosis, something that might uh, um, amplify the effects uh, that we're achieving with DNA damaging agents like platinum and radiation. So there is a randomized phase two trial of, um, of Zivinipant, uh, previously known as wo 1143 This was conducted in stage three 4A or 4B oral cavity, oropharynx, hypopharynx, or larynx cancer that had at least a, a T-stage of uh, 2 and N0 to N3 and no distant metastases. And um, the patients had uh, smoking history. They were uh, 96 patients were randomized one-to-one, either to a control arm that'd be pretty familiar to you by now, uh, cisplatin 100 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks, together with uh, 70 gray of IMRT, or to the same thing with the inclusion of zivinipant 200 milligrams a day orally, days one to 14, every three weeks for three cycles. The uh, patients were stratified on their uh, nodal stage, their primary tumor site, and if they had oropharynx cancer, on their HPV-16 status. And then the primary endpoint of the study was local regional control at 18 months from the end of radiation, with other secondary endpoints of progression-free survival, overall survival, duration of response, and safety. And so the first look that we had at these data were the, the three-year uh, progression-free Uh, uh, survival data, and and these were already pretty striking. So you can see here a hazard ratio of, um, 0.33. And, um, you can see the, uh, three-year progression-free survival going from 36% to 72%. Now you might be reacting to that 36%, but remember this was a, a smoking population, a, a, um, advanced, uh, locally advanced disease. And the 72% is certainly much better than we would be expecting in that population. Um, and now, more recently, we've seen the five-year overall survival uh, results. And again, these are quite striking. Um, and you can see that the five-year survival nearly doubled, going from 28 to 53%. In terms of safety, um, there were late toxicities in 73% of the patients on the zavinopant and 66% of the patients on the placebo arm. If you look at uh, high-grade mucositis, 31% with zavinopant, 21% with placebo, um, and uh, also an increase in um, dysphagia, the uh, neutropenia was actually slightly reduced and um, ALT increased in um, 13 there is now a phase 3 study to look at the question of incorporating uh, Zavinipant. So this is the TriLink study. It's for locally advanced squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck, 700 patients, the accrual has completed, um and patients are randomized as you saw in the phase 2 study either to placebo, platinum and um IMRT or to the same thing with the incorporation of Zavinipant. The one thing that is different in this study is that as um, co-clinical trials in animal models have evolved, and um, as the investigators from the original trial considered what they were learning about the um, uh, late uh, evolution of response in patients in the randomized phase two, there has been the addition now of three additional cycles of zavinopant following the completion of chemoradiation, both to maximize apoptosis in cells that are carrying the traces of platinum and radiation, but may not uh, yet have died, as well as for some considerations about uh, immune response that, that might be fostered by immunogenic cell death uh, as supported by Zavinapan. Primary uh, endpoint of this study is event-free survival, with secondary endpoints of progression-free survival, overall survival, local-regional control, safety, and quality of life.
0: The eligibility
2: criteria are quite similar, Uh, to other studies that that you've seen here. As I was trying to say before, we have some concerns about what's the right timing, what's the right way to integrate uh, immunotherapy. And so there's been interest in the use of immunotherapy in the preoperative setting um, where you may uh, allow more time for the immune response to mature before uh, you undertake the definitive surgery. And so I just wanted to introduce the design of the Keynote 689 study, which is a randomized study for resectable patients of pembrolizumab versus no neoadjuvant treatment before surgery two cycles of pembrolizumab or straight to surgery. And then um, following surgery, patients get risk-based postoperative therapy, and uh, depending on their upfront randomization, that either incorporates or does not incorporate pembrolizumab. And so just to summarize, chemoradiation for now remains the standard of care for the non-surgical management of locally advanced squamous cell cancer of the head and neck. Immune checkpoint inhibition trials have been negative to date and not for lack of trying. Um, And targeting inhibitors of apoptosis appears promising, and we expect phase 3 data, you know, hopefully within the year or so. So um, with that, I'd like to introduce Professor Harrington to bring us home.
1: Thanks very much indeed, Barbara. Um, So I'm going to discuss... um aspects of what you've already heard, but I'm going to focus in particular on a couple of case presentations just to change the tone of how we discuss things. So the first case, um, both of these cases are real cases from our own practice within London. So the first case is an unusual case, a 28-year-old man who presented with an eight-month history of a change in his voice, recent development of difficulty in swallowing, um, and also earache on the right-hand side. He gave no past medical history whatsoever, except for some gastroesophageal reflux disease. He was a lifelong never smoker and, is, and was essentially teetotal. He drank no alcohol. He had been vaccinated against the human papillomavirus. His father is a surgeon um, and took this very seriously. He received the quadrivalent vaccine. Interestingly, in the family history, he has a sister, alive and well, who was diagnosed with Wilms tumor at the age of three. So this was the clinical presentation of this young man. So at flexible nasendoscopy, we could see an ulcerated and an endophytic mass centered on the right piriform sinus affecting the medial wall. But as you can see, it's effectively filling the piriform sinus there where the red arrow shows you the disease. Biopsy from this region revealed a poorly differentiated squamous cell carcinoma. And as expected in this um, site within the head and neck, it was P16 negative. Imaging, as you can see, demonstrated an absence of cartilage invasion. I'm showing you only a single slice, but we looked at that carefully, as I'm sure you'll imagine. And there was no evidence of nodal or systemic metastasis. We profiled the tumor which demonstrated that the tumor has a p53 mutation, but the patient does not have a germline p53 mutation. And the tumor had a uh, a mutation of p16. So um, it truly was p16 negative. It was mutated with an inactivating mutation of p16. So the diagnosis was that of a T3N0 squamous cell carcinoma of the hypopharynx. So This next question may look like a poll, but we're not inviting you, I'm afraid, to answer this. But you can answer it in your own minds and amongst Mm -hmm. yourselves. So what would we do? Would we perform a pharyngolaryngectomy, subjecting this young man to a permanent tracheostome um, and a requirement for a pharyngeal reconstruction with its um, associated problems with swallowing long term? Would we treat him with induction chemotherapy followed by chemoradiation if the patient responded to in induction chemotherapy in a larynx preservation approach? Or would we just go straight to curative intent chemoradiation with cisplatin-based approach? Or indeed, could we think about bioradiotherapy with cetuximab-based treatment? Or indeed, would we consider this patient for entry into a clinical trial with a drug such as a SMAC mimetic, such as zivinopend? Or indeed, could we offer treatment within a clinical trial with immunotherapy, either concomitantly or, as was the case at the time that this man was treated, with adjuvant immunotherapy, which was the trial we had at the time. So I want to just, and I'll tell you what happens in due course, but I just want to um, use this as a side um, a side step, really, just to discuss the fact in a 28-year-old patient, I'm sure everyone in the room is aware of the possibility that patients with Fanconi anemia can present with their very first presentation of that diagnosis with a squamous cell carcinoma of the upper aerodigestive tract. And so we are always on the lookout for such problems. Um, so we requested a, um, a DNA fragility. Um, assay in this young man to check whether or not he had an undisclosed diagnosis of Fanconi anemia, bearing in mind the family history of Wilms' tumor as well, perhaps betokening the fact that this family has some sort of underlying genetic problem. Um, the interim recommendation of the MDT, pending that result, was for curative intent chemo-radiation. But the, we noted the fact the patient was eligible for inclusion within the trilink study. Subsequently, the Fanconi anemia test was negative, and we were reassured that we could treat this patient with chemotherapy and radiotherapy, and the patient, after detailed discussion, including multiple teleconferences with his father in New Zealand, consented to entry into the TriLynx study. On the right-hand side of the slide, I just summarized for you the fact that Fanconi, um, the Fanconi protein complex and gene complex is an extremely complicated series of proteins that form macromolecular complexes within the cell and which are involved in resolution of DNA damage Um, and their mutations and there are multiple forms of Fanconi anemia can lead to a predisposition to the generation of mutations and can also contribute therefore to carcinogenesis, not in the case of this patient. So I use this opportunity to, again to remind you of the potential role of SMAC mimetics. Remember, SMAC mimetics are inhibitors of the inhibitors of apoptosis proteins. This gives us two shots on goal with therapy. Potentially, of course, we've heard in detail about the potential role of SMAC mimetic therapy as a means of enhancing, as as Professor Cohen said, lowering the threshold for the induction of apoptosis at the level of the mitochondrion, also with an interaction with non-canonical NF-kappa B signaling on the right-hand side of the slide, giving us a second potential mechanism for this therapy. So not only can it increase cell kill, but it can potentially do that in a way that may be seen as more immunogenic within the cell and within the tumor microenvironment. Again, I show you a version of a slide that you've already seen by way of revision reminding you of the fact that of the two families of IAP proteins, the XIAP and the CIAP with a C, um, these have interactions both with apoptotic signaling and also with pro-inflammatory immune signaling in non-canonical NF-kappa B pathway activation that can lead to environmental release of TNF-alpha and a pro-inflammatory environment activating dendritic cells leading to cross-presentation of tumor-associated antigens, T-cell amplification, and T-cell-directed anti-tumor activity. On the right-hand side of the slide, I show you, in addition to savinapant, there are other agents that are in use in preclinical studies largely, and the vigilant in the audience will note that the suffix apant indicates um, that this is a SMAC mimetic, and you'll see other drugs, no doubt. I hope, appearing in due course in clinical trials. Now, in this rather complicated slide, I show you some of the other agents that we might think about in terms of possibilities for combination with agents such as SMAC memetics. So again, you'll be familiar with the notion that this is essentially a cartoon version of the cancer immunity cycle um, popularized by Chen and Melman in their seminal review article. And you can see here that there are a number of places where we can develop combination strategies. So there are opportunities here for combination of cytotoxic drugs in the form of things like platinums. There is an opportunity for the use of external beam radiation as, again, a source of extrinsic, um, well, extrinsic administered therapy delivering an intrinsic apoptotic signal through DNA damage. And this can be interacted with both with immune checkpoint inhibitors. You can see there I've listed CTLA-4 and pd one pdl one as, um, as reviewed by Professor Bert Ness. But of course, there are a number of other immune checkpoints that could play into this system. Um, I also, on the right-hand side of the slide, list for you the fact that there are other opportunities. So I've mentioned the other immune checkpoint inhibitors, both agonistic and potentially antagonistic against checkpoints. There are opportunities um, for the development of antibody drug conjugate therapies. And I think we will see these entering the fray in the treatment of head and neck cancer and other diseases in the coming years. So coming back to the case in the summary, I'll tell you what happened to this young man. So he was able to receive um, full dose cisplatin-based chemo-radiation, receiving full doses of platinum, 100 milligrams per meter squared at each of the doses. He was able to take oral xavinopant, but he did experience a grade 2 elevation of lipase and AST, which led to some delay in the delivery of xavinopant, but nonetheless, on waiting for the normalization of those blood values, we were able to treat this patient subsequently. In a post-treatment scan, We saw post-treatment follow-up at nasendoscopy. We saw thickening of the right vocal cord that caused us some anxiety, but I'm pleased to say his post-treatment PET-CT scan was negative and he remains in complete remission. The second case is that of a 69-year-old lady presenting with a history of a sore throat, right-sided earache, and lumps in the neck, as you can see on the scan. A heavy smoker with a heavy alcohol consumption and a past medical history which really shows some illnesses which are not particularly germane to the management of her care of her case of cancer. And she had a performance status of 1, moderately symptomatic. So overall, and this is using the TNM7 classification, T2N2B squamous cell carcinoma, HPV positive disease, probably driven by the smoking and the alcohol history, but nonetheless P16 positive. So again, I ask you to think, what would you use as your management opportunity for this patient with bilateral neck disease? Robotic resection with bilateral neck dissections, induction chemotherapy followed by chemoradiation. Again, curative intent chemoradiation with platin-based therapy or cetuximab-based therapy. Again, consideration of entry into a SMAC mimetic um, therapy clinical trial or indeed Um, A study involving immunotherapy. I'm going to use this case to illustrate decisions around the use of platinum because platinum, I note the fact that this lady was 69 years of age. And we know from the meta-analysis that age is a determinant, and we know from other studies, age is a determinant of the risk of toxicity of platinum. And indeed, patients who have had their 70th birthday are at greater risk of platinum-induced toxicity, and this needs to be taken into account when treating patients. We also know that ECOG performance status is a significant predictor of toxicity of platinum. So again, for patients where the performance status is greater than or equal to 2, platinum is not an initial choice for these patients and indeed is associated with very significant risk and is certainly something that we would avoid in our practice. The issue of ototoxicity is one that is relatively poorly documented in the literature, but again, for those with existing hearing loss or tinnitus, the use of platinum-based chemotherapy and radiation is associated with significant ototoxicity, and you can see here that even radiation alone or radiation plus platinum is associated with a very wide range of reported um, deterioration in hearing function in as many as 88% of patients in some studies. So again, sensory neural hearing loss is an issue that we need to consider. Here I list some of the other comorbidities taken into account when selecting patients for therapy. So again, Neurological disorders, you can see that grade one pre-existing neurological disorders should regard it as high risk. Hepatic and respiratory and cardiovascular diseases, the presence of these or the presence of them at grade uh, two or greater is associated with a high risk of um, significant toxicity. And you can see on the right-hand side of the slide that in a cohort of patients, nearly 1,500 patients uh, with head and neck cancer, this is changing perhaps with the HPV demographic but a significant history of cardiovascular and respiratory disease exists, which should lead us to have some caution. And again, we know that pre-existing neurological disorders increases the risk of neuropathy. Um, and there are a number of uh, comorbidities that in- may increase toxicity due to delayed hepatic metabolism or accelerated kidney damage. And this is something, again, that we'll need to consider as we move new therapies such as Savinopant into the clinic. So, very briefly, now I summarize this second case. What did we do? Um, the recommendation of the MDT on this occasion was for curative intent chemo radiation. Um, we considered her disease to be high risk, and she was, in fact, eligible for the in house study of concomitant immunotherapy with an anti PD 1 based approach. She entered that study. She developed um, treatment induced hypothyroidism, which is not uncommon, but developed um, an ongoing treatment receiving um, pembrolizumab in this case, a hepatitis at two months post-chemo radiation, which led us to permanently cease the immunotherapy. And I'm pleased to say this patient remains in complete remission. This patient was not in the Keynote 412 study, was treated with a regimen that very much resembles that. So I ask you now to submit questions. I'm going to go back to the desk and we'll look on the, um, on the tablet to see if you've submitted your questions online. Um, and we will do our best to answer those. So we've seen, Barbara, we've seen two studies which show that concomitant use of a pd one and a PD-1 alongside radiotherapy and chemotherapy have been negative. But in both of those studies, you gave us a hint that maybe if we'd chosen a population with a higher value of CPS, the results might have been different. Do you think we need to go back and redo those studies now and select for patients with CPS greater than or equal to twenty, or has the world moved on past that?
2: So, I, I certainly hope that we are going to study how best to incorporate immune checkpoint inhibition into into definitive therapy, uh, into chemo radiation. Um, whether or not we just want to go back and do keynote four twelve over in the CPS twenty population, I mean that. The hazard ratio favored pembrolizumab, but not on the home run, right? Um, So I think that that it makes sense, that it behooves us to think more about how we're uh, handling the scheduling um, of the treatments. And so, you know... We have the, the sequential approach ongoing in, in ecog We We uh, showed the design of the 689 neoadjuvant trial. We'll be seeing on Monday morning a very intriguing study of chemotherapy with or without PD-1 inhibition for three cycles prior to chemoradiation and nasopharynx cancer. Um, so I think concentrating on the high-risk HPV-negative patients, concentrating on the pdl one expressing patients, those are important. But I think we have more to learn about how best to do it. Thank you. I don't know maybe if, you know if I could, and I
1: th- maybe if I could, in, in light of time, I am going to move to maybe a separate question, Ezra, if I may. So, in terms of the design we've seen of the trialing study, there is the addition that is separate from the phase two study of the adjuvant phase of savinapand. So, how convinced are you about the importance of that element of the treatment? And if we have a positive study, do you see yourself delivering the whole package of treatment or would you consider maybe part of that treatment might be more important than other parts of the treatment? How are you going to process that that
0: approach? I think um, the second part of your question is easier to answer. I I would, uh, given a positive study, I would stick with the regimen. That's where the level one evidence is and and I would try to deliver that um, as the study did uh the the first part of your question is do do we need to do it uh or is it um you know is there a rationale to do it and I, and I think there is we clearly know that the as barbara you mentioned the effects of um chemotherapy and especially the effects of of radiation do last uh beyond that last dose uh and so uh, i think there is an opportunity to continue to sensitize cancer cells uh, as well as normal cells, mm-hmm. although we try to avoid that, but to sensitize cancer cells to this apoptotic insult. Uh, so to me, it, it makes a lot of sense to, uh, to add that on. Um, we may see, uh, some toxicity that we didn't necessarily see in the phase two. It'll be interesting to, to note that. Um, I, I, I find it hard to imagine that it would have an antagonistic effect. That is, it would have a decremental effect on efficacy. Uh, um so um I, 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 fa- I favor doing it and if trialing is positive, I would certainly do it in my patients. Barbara, you take the same view?
2: Yeah, I think if you have a positive phase three trial, who are we to, <laughs> you know, second guess that? And, and I think, um you know if if people who who are familiar with treating prostate cancer or anal cancer right you, if you do the biopsy too early you, you fail to identify the patients with the the path cr right so the idea that radiation cell death takes up to 12 weeks i think is is a familiar one
1: so just for the record, that's a full house from all three of us. I would take exactly the same view <laughs> that we should uh, obey the protocol if we have a positive phase three trial. So we have a separate uh, question now coming in from the audience. Um, I'm going to read it out directly, and then I think um, I'm going to hope that I get this, the sense of it uh, correct. There's another study like the ECOG study that uses a tezolizumab rather than nivolumab. Thoughts on that? I think this is the Invoke 10 question. Um, do you want to just maybe, Barbara? if You start by just pointing out differences between the design of the um, of uh, the the nivolumab study, um, the NRG Acrin study, and the um, and the atezolizumab study, the 10? Yeah.
2: So, so the ECOG study um, is confined to HPV positive patients who have intermediate risk, um, and it's confined to patients who've had chemoradiation. And Invoke permits both chemoradiation and surgery. Um, Nivolumab is a PD1 inhibitor. uh is a, a tesalizumab is a PDL1 inhibitor. Um, but I think that the uh, y- y- you know the the idea that sequential therapy might be might be a better way to go um, deserves you know careful investigation and having two studies that take slightly different approaches to that is is perhaps good. And
1: and Ezra, any any thoughts around the the time interval between the completion of chemo radiation and the, um, and the starting of an immune checkpoint inhibitor, for instance, because the Atezo study allows for really quite a prota- yes, protracted yes. delay, does it not? Yeah,
0: I, I believe it's uh, up to 24 weeks, if I, oh, if I recall from the we start in, We start in four weeks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you, you mimicked uh, the Pacific uh, non-small cell lung cancer uh, closer than um, the atezo trial. Um, I think that, that, you can look at it uh, in opposing ways. Uh, I think um, you can. Uh, you're almost certainly going to get a better performance of the control arm uh, the longer you wait, uh, and we've seen that with other adjuvant studies. You may remember a drug called lapatinib uh, or afatinib, um, and. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, we, when those studies took patients, uh, or started them, uh, many weeks after the completion of chemotherapy radiation, uh, we saw that those control arms did, did very well. And I think that we're selecting for that population and we may see that in, in VOC 10. On the other hand, um, as we were discussing, there does potentially seem to be a negative interaction between concurrent radiation especially when we think about high volumes in locally advanced head and neck cancer, high volumes uh, fields uh, of radiation and uh, these um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. And by waiting for 24 weeks, um, and that's the maximum, by the way, that's not the requirement. Uh, certainly patients can start sooner than that. Um, but by waiting, you may avoid that interaction all uh, altogether again, didn't see that in pacific uh, um but we have to remember that non small cell lung cancer has smaller uh, radiation volumes um so I, I don't know that's a long way of saying I don't know
2: yeah can i can I add <laughs> the third? This half, that half, and the other half. <laughs> um, it, on the it, third hand, <laughs> yeah, on the third hand. Um, it, in s- uterine cervix cancer studies have been done where they look at biopsies certain numbers of weeks after chemo radiation and look at PDL1 expression. Untils, those do go up post radiation, but they then come down as the post radiation fibrosis is elaborated. So I, th- I think one concern I might have in you know, in head neck, where we know that the post-radiation tissue is fibrotic, hypoxic, um, mm-hmm. that the ingress of T cells might eventually be hampered by very late radiation effects.
1: Okay, so we're coming up close on time, but I want to, if I may, just if there's time to ask two very quick questions and I invite quick answers. So assuming that we get a positive trialing study and the data there is based around the high dose 100 milligrams per meter squared, what would you say to investigators who are wedded to using 40 milligrams per meter squared in their routine practice? How do they apply a positive trialing study? In very few words, please.
0: I'm glad you asked that because I'm going to completely contradict what I said before (laughs) and I would be very comfortable using the weekly 40 milligrams per meter squared. Barbara,
2: Um, So if it came down – I'm sorry, it's not going to be as short as you want, but (laughs) if it came down to not having my patient get Zivinipan because I didn't think that they were a candidate for high-dose cisplatin or – allowing them to get savinapant by giving weekly cisplatin. I might do the latter. So I would try to give them high-dose cisplatin, but if they were a diabetic on three yeah. antihypertensives, okay. I would okay. move to weekly.
1: And I think that's a very, very very sensible approach. I think both of them are very sensible approaches. And the final question, just to honor the fact that there's been a question submitted, um, and I'll perhaps give the first answer to this. The question is, what is the suicide rate for patients with head and neck cancer? I have to say that having been a head and neck oncologist now for... Um, best part of 30 years, I can remember a single patient um, in 30 years.
2: Um, I don't think I've ever had one of mine, but in our practice, we've had some. I know that the, the uh, literature says that it's higher than for some yeah. other yeah. cancers. It's, it's. I don't know the it's, percentage. Uh,
0: it's the cancer associated with the highest rates of depression and the highest rates of suicide. That was a uh, study based on U.S., uh, 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 national data um, published, I believe, in JAMA Oncology about two years ago. And head and neck cancer at the highest rate of depression, highest rate of suicide among uh, any any malignancy. And so it's a real uh, problem. Okay. so uh,
1: So to make sure that we don't end on that note, <laughs> I want to end on a very positive note. I hope that you will agree with me. Um, Superb presentations by faculty, by Professors Cohen and Burt Ness, and I thank them for their presentations. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank Thank you. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.